Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, it's David Rothkopf, your host, and I'm here in New York City for our Thursday afternoon uh, attempt to try to f- make some sense of everything that's going on around us. Uh, as usual, on Thursdays, uh, we are joined by my Thursday co-host, um, Ryan Goodman, although I don't know where he is. He's at the beach, I think, or some luxurious <laughs> resort. Uh, hi, Ryan. You've abandoned me in hi. the studio. <laughs> Hello from the beach in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, the, yeah, those are always <laughs> lovely, lovely beaches. Um, uh, uh, we're also uh, joined by an old friend, Susan Hennessy of the Lawfare Organization, who is also the co-author of a book with Benjamin Wittes, which is coming out real soon called Unmaking the Presidency, Donald Trump's War on the World's Most Powerful Office. Uh, congratulations, Susan, to you guys on the book. Thank you. And it's nice to be here. Nice to have you. It's very exciting. I've seen on Twitter you op- you know, taking the bo- book out of the box when you got it. That's always – in fact, I think that's actually the only pleasurable moment of, of writing a book. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's exciting <laughs> holding your first and last book in your hand. <laughs> yeah, well, careful, <laughs> careful. Uh, I've thought that too and didn't work out that way. And, of course, somebody who knows all about – the the good moments of writing books and who has had no bad moments, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hi, good to be with you, David. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to know where to start this week because there's been so much noise uh, created around uh, events in Washington uh, of a nonsensical variety where you have um, members of the Republican um, uh, uh uh, House uh, breaking into a uh, scheduled meeting uh, in a skiff, a secure facility uh, in the basement of the House to try to uh, further block, uh, you know, testimony from somebody that the White House had previously, or the Defense Department had previously tried to keep from testifying um, uh, by saying that the testimony was, you know, that the testimony, this process was closed to Republicans. As it turns out, 25% of all the Republicans in Congress are actually eligible to go as members of the three committees with jurisdiction here. Uh, And the rules that say who could come and go were passed uh, in 2015 by a Republican-majority Congress, led by Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner. So Republican argument seems to be a little bit... um, strange, but I'm sure there's a simple explanation for that. Isn't there, Susan? There is a simple explanation for that, and I think that's hypocrisy. Um, You know, look, this is, I I think we are, we've now sort of seen 
the agreed upon tactic for tactics for Republicans opposing the impeachment inquiry. And that's actually not an attempt to defend the president on the substance at all, really. They've pretty much given up uh, the argument that there was no quid pro quo, or even really that the argument that a quid pro quo is okay. And instead, they're trying to focus on procedural irregularity or what they're claiming to be procedural irregularity. Um, now, what we saw this, uh, you know, yesterday with this sort of bizarre stunt of, of 30 members trying to come into the uh, to the skiff in the Capitol basement, um, you know, is, is really sort of centers around this notion that the House should be passing a formal impeachment inquiry vote uh, and that proceedings should be public at this point. They're pointing to sort of the Bill Clinton precedent for that. And, and the problem is, is that at the time that the Clinton impeachment began, the star report was done and all fact finding was over. And so really all of the objections to the way the you know committee hearings are, are proceeding under the rules, under rules as passed by Republicans, um, I, I think really is just a, a bunch of noise. I don't, I don't think anybody really believes that these are uh, these are genuine concerns or, or objections. Yeah, but that hasn't stopped, you know, for example, Lindsey Graham from having a press conference the afternoon that we are taping this thing, um, in which he said that the problem is a lack of due process, Ryan. And he has also said that the phone call the president made was perfectly fine, and he sees no wrongdoing on the part of the president, which I think is kind of interesting, because on the one hand, he's complaining about a lack of due process when he knows, as a former judge, full well that there is exactly the due process that is called for in this situation. But at the same time, as a potential juror in the Senate, he is uh, expressing a viewpoint on the conclusion of this entire process, which seems to circumvent due process. Um, So I guess that brings us back to Susan's hypocrisy conclusion. Do you have uh, anything to add on that, Ryan? Um, Well, it doesn't seem as though Lindsey Graham can get much agreement from other Republicans to say that the call was pitch perfect. He does seem to be, as Susan said, uh, you know, getting traction like they're getting in the House and trying to just muck it up about procedure. So in a sense that we would all be discussing procedure today rather than discussing uh, the substance of the allegations against the president. So in some sense, it's working a little bit, um, just the fact that we have to dissect uh, what he's done. Um, He's now saying that uh, he has 44 senators uh, that are supporting his resolution today on um, criticizing or condemning the procedure in the House, uh, which is also kind of interesting because that were a resolution in the Senate would not pass (laughs) with 44 votes. Um, Well, and also and it it also suggests that there are, you know, nine or 10 Republicans who didn't jump on with him. Right. Exactly. Uh, Collins is not on that list. Uh, Mitt Romney is not on that list. Um, so he just uh, posted the list on Twitter in the last like 30, 40 minutes. Uh, so that's also quite notable. There's a kind of a weakness there, uh, even in their attempt to uh, do this. And, at the, and you know, I think also what he's doing is what some of the other Republicans on that list might be doing, which is trying to show the president that they're kind of supporting him. So it's also more of a signal to the president um, that they're doing something, uh, even though this, I think that might mean nothing at the end of the day, because, 
you know, Schiff might then take the procedure to the next step that happened with Watergate, which is after the witnesses have been interviewed in closed-door proceedings, then uh, bring it out in the public. And just yesterday, there was already uh, a message coming out that he full well plans to do that um, at a certain point because they want to educate the public about the underlying allegations. And it's a, only a question of which witnesses do they want to sequence um, so that that story gets told in a, you know, in a way that the public can understand. So I think even this distraction is going to just melt away um, at a later point because we'll be in the mode of a very public uh, airing. And uh, let's see uh, who... Uh, wants to see what uh, is exposed in that uh, particular proceeding. Well, you know, Ed, it suggests to me that this is a be careful what you wish for moment for the Republicans, both in terms of making the case that there is no due process, when in fact um, these hearings are running in about as balanced a way as is humanly possible. Uh, uh, almost all such uh, hearings begin in this way. Uh, and although it's behind closed doors, the rules for the hearings are, of course, all the Republican members of these three committees can attend, which is, as I say, over a quarter of the Congress. But also the way the questioning goes in these hearings is the Democratic Council gets to ask for, I think it's an hour, then the Republican Council gets to ask for an hour, then Democratic Council gets 45 minutes, then the Republican gets 45 minutes, then the Democrats get to ask questions and the Republicans get to ask questions. And and so, in fact, uh, it couldn't be more um, balanced uh, or transparent to the Republican Party. And then when you go beyond that and you get into a question of open hearings— well, I, you know, it ha- th- th- there hasn't been any report from these hearings, and we would have heard if there had been, of anything that seems to defend the president in any way, has there? No, 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 no. I mean, the, the, the process has been, um, dare I say it, fair and balanced um, by, by all accounts. And if there had been the slightest deviation or the slightest tweak uh, as to what constitutes um, fair and uh, normal procedure, we would have heard about it. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I think hypocrisy is, is sort of too mild a term to um, discuss, you know, to, to um, uh, encapsulate what the likes of Lindsey Graham and Mike Pompeo, for that matter, um, have been saying. Um, the, uh, you know, the Benghazi hearings under uh, Trey, Ga- Trey Gowdy and Devin Nunes and others like that, um, you know, were conducted um, in in private. Um, there were multiply documented bending of the rules there. Um, there was a, a entirely leaky process um, that you know makes this look um, like an absolute. Um, what's the word for it? So I'm being I'm being slightly distracted here by my daughter, um, who's um, tra- trying to. Um, tr- trying to drag me outside. Um, uh, so, um, uh, I, you know, all I can say is I've got nothing to add to what everyone said, um, and I will be back with you shortly. So <laughs> excuse me for a second. Um, yeah, okay. Um, well, let me uh, turn to you again, Susan, but do it in and in, in not focused on these distractions. Uh, but let's get to the core of 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 some of this. And I'll start with uh, what we've been seeing in the House uh, in, in these hearings. And then I, I do want to turn to a couple of other uh, related elements pertaining um, to a court case in New York and to uh, the Giuliani involvement. Uh, but 
but first, in terms of the House, it seems to me that, you know, at the very beginning of this week, things were as bad as they have ever been for the president, um, in part because of this egregiously corrupt decision to have the G7 meeting at Doral, which he has since reversed, um, but which reveals him to be what he is, which is somebody trying to cash in on the presidency every way he can. Um, but but secondly, because of the testimony of um, uh, Ambassador Bill Taylor, who came in and essentially said not only was there, um, you know, an effort to withhold aid to the um, uh, uh, to Ukraine, unless they uh, publicly announced that they were going to investigate the the company that Hunter Biden was involved with, uh, and this crazy conspiracy theory about 2016. Um, but you know, by the way, here are my contemporaneous notes. Here are my texts. Here's all the evidence, um, and I am not a partisan. Uh, I've served presidents of both parties since 1985. I'm a Vietnam veteran, uh, and, you know, my reputation is impeccable. And that seemed to be as shaking a bit of evidence has been offered up against the president as we have gotten. It has subsequently been updated, and, you know, there's even, as we're, you know, on the air here recording this, new reporting from the Washington Post um, that— other kinds of benefits to Ukraine were being withheld, uh, such as trade benefits. Uh, and when those came up in a discussion, Bolton said to the officials involved, don't pursue this. The president's not going to let them get anywhere until we get this issue resolved, which is the issue of uh, of, of helping him with his, his, his personal reelection issues. So I mean, do you agree? Do you think this Bill Taylor thing is the most damning bit of evidence in the Ukraine story? Uh, And do you think we need something else before this becomes uh, case closed, at least in in the eyes of a rational observer? So I'm of the view that in the eyes of a rational observer, it was pretty close to case closed when the White House actually released that call sort of memorandum or or call transcripts, you know, Weeks ago, um, you know, so I think the the plain evidence of um, of serious abuse and an impeachable abuse has already been on the table. You know, that said, clearly Bill Taylor's testimony was um, sort of a pivotal moment. Uh, I think it's significant that we are seeing, you know, sort of this Republican stunt with the House. If, uh, you know, it, it, it was an attempt to prevent more testimony. Uh, a Department of Defense official, Laura Cooper, was supposed to be testifying. Um, clearly, they were quite shaken um, by what came out of Bill Taylor's testimony. Clearly, they understood that there was momentum building. Now, Taylor didn't really say a lot of new information. Um, you know, there, there were a few new additional pieces. But what he really did was very meticulously and quite credibly laid out a timeline, explained exactly what was going on, and made crystal clear that there was absolutely no question that this aid was being held up 
because there was a pursuit of legitimate U.S. interests. And then, in fact, this secondary channel that was operating, um, this irregular channel, as he describes it, was actively working against U.S. interests. And he really made a point of talking about, you know, that they convened multiple principles meetings trying to determine uh, whether or not this aid should be released. It was the unanimous decision at the conclusion of each and every one of those meetings that the aid did need to be released. And so what he's really doing is making the case that this is not the president who has a policy disagreement. This is a president that is sending out essentially his henchmen or minions in order to dig up political dirt on an opponent in a way that's actually incredibly harmful, uh, incredibly harmful to U.S. interests. You know, the other significant thing that happened, of course, was Mick Mulvaney's sort of disastrous press conference in which he, you know, sort of kind of did the, you know, you're damn right I ordered the code red. Yes, it was a quid pro quo. There's nothing wrong with it. And the significant thing about uh, what Mulvaney said is that he was quite explicit that this aid was held up uh, not for any legitimate spending review, but because the president wanted to see investigations. So Mulvaney was trying to defend it as saying, well, he didn't want investigations into Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Burisma. He wanted these investigations into, uh, you know, this sort of debunked conspiracy theory about the DNC hack in the 2016 election somehow being housed on a Ukrainian server. The problem is that investigation is just as abusive, just as political uh, as the Biden investigation, even if you were willing to sort of accept Mulvaney's representations on its face. And so, you know, look, I, I think at this point, the House does face a pretty difficult decision, House Democrats do, and that's that the existing evidence is certainly strong enough to move to an impeachment vote. Uh, that said, there is some indication that there is additional quite serious wrongdoing, serious questions about the involvement of the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, other individuals. And so the Democrats have to decide how long do they want to continue in sort of this fact-finding mode in order to really get to the bottom of what happened? Because it appears that there is a wide-ranging sort of corruption and abuse that's been going on versus wanting to sort of say, okay, we have enough, we have a strong enough record, and, and it's time to move to a vote and basically dump this in the laps of the Senate for them to decide what to do about it. You know, um, Ryan, I had a conversation a little bit earlier with uh, um, uh, Representative Jamie Raskin, which is on a different episode of Deep State Radio, and uh, he's both on the Judiciary Committee and on the Oversight Committee, and and we started talking about this, and you know he you know he went on at some length about how uh, and and rather compellingly about the strength of the case on obstruction, the strength of the case on emoluments, the strength of the case on other areas, federal election law, and so forth against Trump. But all these things have been true for a long time, um, and as Susan says, this case has been strong for a long time. What seemed to happen at the beginning of this week that differentiates the entire preceding three years was something started to seem to crack with a few Republicans. Maybe Doral was too ugly. Maybe Mulvaney admitting there was a crime after Trump had admitted there was a crime, after the the memo of the phone call had suggested there was a crime, was too much for some of these people. But But something seems to be potentially moving. And I guess that's where I come to the question of what else do you need to go from the absolute certainty that he will be impeached in the House and it being rather unlikely that he will be 
removed from office in the Senate to getting 10 or 20, I guess, Republicans who, who, who say, no, this is too much. Is, I mean, do you keep working this case until 65% of Americans favor removal from office and there's some other big smoking gun? Or, or do you make this case because, frankly, in any reasonable person's eyes, it's enough? Um, so I think you make this case because in any uh, reasonable person's eyes, it's enough and it's devastating. Um, and CNN is, you know, CNN has a story from GOP sources saying uh, explicitly that they are focusing on process because they have no substantive defense of the president's actions. All of the defenses that Susan has mapped out have just fallen apart. Um, and so I do think that that's, Real, that's the part of the realization, and that we already are working with 55% of the public in uh, several polls uh, favoring the impeachment inquiry, impeachment and removal. And it's only going to go higher, I would think, with public hearings, especially given that there's some percentage of the public that might still even be ignorant of the fact that Biden was mentioned on the call, <laughs> despite the president himself saying it. So I think that level of the public's education and exposure to it will go up when they see vivid testimony. Apparently, you know, there were gasps in, in the room when um, Ambassador Taylor testified. I imagine there'll be gasps at the television set when people see this person with such great integrity and obviously a public servant across multiple administrations speak uh, the truth. That will be something. I can imagine uh, John Bolton uh, speaks. Let's see the right-wing media try to take apart John Bolton. Um, and there are just ways in which I think this is the this is the target set. And it seems as though it's struck a chord with the public. It's different than all the other um, allegations and impeachable conduct. Something's different. I do want to just um, make one friendly amendment to something that Susan said, which is, you know, the Mulvaney admission. I think was a um, a, an important pivot point, but his admission is indeed only about a direct quid pro quo with the investigation into the 2016 election. Uh, but I did do this piece in the last week, which um, is a careful tracing of what Giuliani and Pompeo have said over the past few months, Pompeo three times in uh, Sunday news shows, which is that they were thinking of the 2016 Ukrainian investigation as another vehicle for getting dirt on Biden. Um, so just to give you one example of it, um, in October, October 1st, Giuliani tweeted uh, that in um, the, the exact quote is, quote, Joe's wide range of corruption included obstructing an investigation of Dem 2016 election interference, end quote. It's this cockamamie conspiracy theory that says that Biden removed the prosecutor in Ukraine, not just because of Hunter Biden, but also because that prosecutor was going to investigate um, this organization that created dirt on, that framed uh, Paul Manafort, which is, that's why it's cockamamie. They have to actually, to buy into the conspiracy, you have to think that Paul Manafort was framed. Um, but it was about Biden too. So I think that's what's also just startling about the Mulvaney admission. Uh, because yet they can't get away with the idea that this is just an investigation into seeing whether or not something went wrong in 2016. It is about the 2020 election as well. It is about 
trying to get derogatory information against a political opponent in order to try to win re-election. So I think uh, that's significant. And just one other point is that I don't think it was necessarily a slip-up on Mulvaney's part. It sure is an interesting coincidence that he decided to come out on Thursday, the same day that Sondland was testifying. And we know that Sondland has already told uh, a Republican senator, Ron Johnson, that there was this quid pro quo with the 2016 investigation and this and the military aid. So uh, maybe they were just trying to normalize it. Um, but I don't think they can normalize it, and I don't think the, uh, the Republicans feel that they can defend it. Yeah, a couple of things very quickly on that. One is that uh, the quid pro quo is a distraction. It's the collusion of this story. There doesn't need to be a quid pro quo, and I think we need to say that fairly frequently. And the second thing is that people say that they were seeking dirt um, uh, and I don't think that's actually true, because I think if you go and look at some of the interaction they've had, uh, the interaction was that they wanted Zelensky to come out there and say that, you know, they were investigating this and so forth, not necessarily because they would find dirt, but because Zelensky simply saying that would have a negative effect on Biden. And so simply the appearance of the investigation, which is what they were seeking, as opposed to a particular outcome, uh, you know, does seem to work uh, in their favor. Uh, because we've only got about 15 minutes left, what I'd like to do uh, is ask a couple of uh, questions of you folks serially. And let me start with um, Ed um, who's returned to the room after a brief massage or whatever he does and, and, and the, you know, um, <laughs> fancy. Uh, I, I apologize for that. It was actually my daughter being picked up by her mother. So I had to, I had to be present. Um, it's but, very, um, it's, ve- it's very, it's very, it's, it's, it's uh, totally appropriate. And, uh, so let me, let me ask you a question, Ed, on a slightly different subject. I'm going to also ask a follow-up to Susan on this one question. You know, as as all this stuff has happened with the impeachment this week, um, I was, you know, I have to say the thing that, you know, sort of struck me the, the, the most powerfully was that uh, yesterday in a courtroom in New York City, uh, lawyers for the president made the argument to um, uh, three uh, 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 justices of circuit court that um, uh, that th- uh, the president um, was immune from prosecution under any circumstances. And one of the judges said, you mean if the president shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, he would be immune from prosecution while president? And uh, the president's lawyer said, yes. And And to me, this is like, you know, it's one thing for the president to say, well, there's a phony emoluments clause in the Constitution. That's ignoring the Constitution. This is ignoring the American Revolution. This is saying, you know, we have a king, and the king can do whatever he wants, and he is actually above the law. And the fact that he said this in the court, representing the president, and said the Department of Justice supports this point of view strikes me as undoing, you know, 240 years of history. Um, uh, but you know, what's your perspective, Ed? <laughs> um, well, I'm not surprised that Trump thinks that. You know, I don't think Trump had studied the Constitution um, uh, uh, or had any grasp of niceties of the balance, uh, the separation of powers um, before he became president, which, you know, it's got to be a first, really, um, that he really has, demonstrates almost no knowledge of the workings of the system. And he still um, betrays his ignorance of it. So I'm not surprised he thinks that. 
Um, I guess I'm not surprised that um, you know Trump's lawyers um, and also Bill Barr, his attorney general, um, can find you know arguments um, about executive power and rights, etc., that can sort of put some kind of dignified language around Trump's um, sort of um, television viewing idea of what a president what a president is and the powers a president has. Um, but um, you know the court rejected it um, pr- pretty roundly and with um, you know like sort of swatting a, a swatting a fly. Um, they might have been democratic appointed um, judges, but I think most most judges of any ideological background would have found um, would have found the answer to that Fifth Avenue question quite shocking. I'm not a you know I'm not a lawyer. I'm not um, still less a constitutional lawyer, so I don't have any subtle points to make on that. Um, you know, except, except to say that I'm unsurprised by anything nowadays. Well, you know, Susan, uh, of course, it, we, we haven't heard the, the decision in that particular um, uh, appeal in this case. Uh, but it seems likely uh, to all involved that it's going to head to the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, where we know there is a political imbalance uh, at the moment, although that's not supposed to affect outcomes uh, this seems to me like you know a major story evolving. Uh, I've read in some places that some people who follow the courts closely think that uh, this Trump position will lose in the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, one would hope that was the case for a lot of you know uh, reasons that I referred to earlier. Um, uh, but caught up in it, of course, is a reference. Um, which got smacked down in the first ruling on this case, to the uh, Office of Legal Counsel decisions, which the uh, uh, prior judge uh, had said, in fact, you know, did not uh, have judicial standing as law. Um, and so this could be very, very significant Supreme Court decision uh, regarding you know, most of the foundation for Trump obstruction and many of the arguments the Justice Department is making for not pursuing investigations into Trump. And I'm wondering if you see it that way and 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 what you think might happen should it go to the Supreme Court. So I think there's a few things to unpack. So first is this claim that even if the president of the United States shot someone on Fifth Avenue, uh, you know, he, he couldn't be prosecuted. I actually don't think it's surprising at all to see a DOJ taking that position in court, in part because it's logically consistent with the position they've taken thus far. And really, to be fair to their argument, their argument is not that the president cannot be prosecuted. The argument, as they're stating it, is that he has to be impeached first. Right. So it's about sort of the order of remedies. And so what they're saying and, and they're saying two things. Um, uh, one is that the president cannot be prosecuted while in office. So, you know, that's a, not an argument I happen to agree with. Um, but, you know, it's an argument in which reasonable minds can differ. This suggestion that the constitutional remedy of impeachment has to come first. Now, DOJ is actually taking it a step further in this case. They're saying that it's not just that the president can't be prosecuted, but that he actually can't be investigated um, while he's in office. And, and this is what I think where the DOJ is really moving, uh, moving the ball in a way that 
it, it just starts to sort of strain logic and, and common sense, right? The idea that the president of the United States cannot even be investigated. And, and there is something significant about the fact that the Justice Department is making the argument to Congress for example, in refusing to produce the president's tax returns, that Congress is really trying to act on law enforcement. This isn't legitimate oversight. This isn't really about congressional oversight. This is about them trying to figure out if, if the president of the United States has committed crimes, and that's a job for law enforcement, and so Congress can't do it. And then at the very same time, the very same Justice Department is turning around and telling, uh, you know, the authorities, the courts in New York, and, and also um, uh, courts, you know, federal courts uh, elsewhere, um, that uh, you know the president can't be investigated, or can't um, require you know these documents to be produced because that's a job for Congress, right? And so law enforcement actually can't investigate the president. That's Congress's job, and so they really are trying to sort of play both sides in a way that you know combine those two positions together, they actually are arguing for this idea that the president of the United States, while he's in office, is essentially beyond the reach of the law. Now, in terms of how the Supreme Court might actually come down on the question of this OLC memo, whether or not a sitting president can be indicted or not, um, it's pretty unlikely that the way that the case will actually come up before the court will provide them with an opportunity to render a judgment on, on that particular matter. Now, they might decide to really lean into it and sort of do one voluntarily. That's, I think that's pretty unlikely. And so I think that the outcome that we're probably going to end up seeing is that we'll continue to have this OLC memo that a sitting president can't be indicted. We might have more sort of court precedent suggesting that's not valid. And yet, because the OLC opinion is binding on the federal government and binding on the Department of Justice, the only body that actually could bring an indictment against a president, um, that will end up sort of being the de facto law until uh, a future president decides to decide to uh, you know to say otherwise. Now we might see uh, sort of the argument come forward and the Supreme Court decide on this question of whether or not a state could prosecute a president, uh, a sitting president. Uh, that's a case in which I think the Supreme Court is very likely to side with the president, um, uh, sort of with DOJ's arguments. But we don't know exactly how the question is going to be presented to the to the court quite yet. I I, I would say, and you know, you're an attorney, and and Ryan's an attorney here. Um, but you know, as a non-attorney, um, one flaw in the logic of of the DOJ case uh, as it's being presented, of course, is that the Constitution actually says that the president can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, and presumably, therefore, one would have to establish that such high crimes and misdemeanors took place, and therefore one would have to investigate the president in order to establish that. And so it seems to me, um, you know, inconsistent with the foundational document of the country. So I happen to agree that I actually think that there are stronger arguments for a question that a president uh, can at a minimum. I certainly think that there's a, uh, overwhelmingly strong, overwhelmingly persuasive arguments that a president can be investigated while in office. And I think the arguments that he can't even be investigated, the OLC opinion does not even say that. Uh, I think there are pretty strong arguments, actually, that a president can be in 
indicted, a sitting president can be indicted, and that if there is a strong sort of argument protecting the executive, it's that a president might need to be impeached before an actual trial takes place. Um, but again, I think this really is going to be a question in which certainly the, the Roberts court is not going to, you know, it's, it's not sort of rubbing its, its palms together, waiting to get this, this question because they really, really want to weigh in. They're going to try and make sort of the, the most conservative, uh, sort of small C conservative, uh, you know, minimal decision possible. And so I think it's pretty unlikely that any of the cases we see making their way through the court at this point are actually going to give the court an opportunity to weigh in on that question, um, which a little bit speaks to kind of the deficiency and dysfunctionality of the situation we're in, which is essentially the executive branch itself declaring that its own head cannot be indicted um, and then not having a remedy, you know, for, for the courts to actually weigh in. I think that sort of highlights, um, you know, just, just how dysfunctional and, and untenable in the long term the situation is. Um, just to jump in on one point about this, I think Susan describes it extraordinarily well, the kind of impossibility of the argument that the Justice Department is putting forward by saying neither can the president be held accountable in the criminal setting and nor can he be investigated, uh, he or she be investigated by the Congress. It's just, um, it's a ludicrous for them to be able to argue both. And then I also, you know, agree that, you know, David, the way in which you are, you know, describe the impeachment clause, it also means that the, the absolute weakest position that the Justice Department is in is in the idea that, the, that Congress cannot investigate the president. Um, and so that's just a loser argument on their part. They would then say that the impeachment clause does refer to crimes, and therefore con the, the right answer would be that Congress can investigate those high crimes and misdemeanors, impeach, remove, and then just as Susan said, um, that's then the, the opportunity for after impeachment and removal, the criminal justice system to prosecute the president for having shot somebody in Fifth Avenue or to wait until his term is over and then can still prosecute him. But I do want to mention one thing, which is another part of the Justice Department's position that seems to me ludicrous is the idea that a sitting president can't be investigated. And part of the reason it's ludicrous is that the very OLC opinions that they are relying on actually say that a president can be investigated while in office. Um, and I'm actually going to, I'm just going to read it to you. It says, this is from the OLC opinion. They said, on the other hand, there may be less reason to fear a prejudicial loss of evidence in the criminal context. A grand jury could continue to gather evidence throughout the period of immunity of a sitting president. And Mueller, in fact, relies on that in his uh, presentation and in the report. He says, here's one of the reasons we investigated the president, which is the OLC opinion says it's to preserve evidence for a potential future grand jury once the president's immunity is no longer in existence because it's just a temporary immunity. So that's what's so um, wrong uh, in a way, I think, as well, about the position that the Justice Department is taking in this particular case. One, one of the many things I think that's wrong about the way the Justice Department is approaching things. So we've only got a couple minutes left here. And what I want to do is go into kind of the uh, shameless plug mode. I have three questions for uh, one question for each of you about something that you've done or worked on that I'd like to highlight. 
Um, and I'm going to go to you, Ed, just because you're next in the flow here. Um, but uh, you had an interesting column talking about the significance of the Tulsi Gabbard rise and the threat of uh, third party and whether it's more significant from the left or the center. And I thought perhaps you could recapitulate that as a way of encouraging people to go and read the real article. <laughs> I, or or I'm saving them from the effort. I like the word recapitulate. Um, well, it's, it's following on from uh, Hillary Clinton's ill-advised um, comments um, on a podcast last week that Tulsi Gabbard, Im- implying that Tulsi Gabbard was a Russian asset um, uh, and that Jill Stein had been a Russian asset. Um, unwise, not because that's um, um, necessarily untrue, although I think she's, she's more of a stooge for Russia, um, Tulsi Gabbard and Jill Stein than, um, than, than an asset. Unwise because, of course, it brought a great deal of attention on, on Gabbard. Uh, a lot of funds um, flowed into her campaign and um, her profile has risen. And of course, you know, the um, attractiveness of um, that kind of spoiler candidacy to um, the conservative entertainment complex um, was immediately manifested by, you know, her appearance on Tucker Carlson's show and Trump speaking favorably of her and so forth. And I think, you know, the, the sort of larger point here is that there is quite a hard foreign policy left, which I see as um, really the sort of mirror image of the mainstream American exceptionalist foreign policy community, which sees that everything bad happening in the world comes from America. Um, and uh, Tulsi Gabbard, you know, is uh, um, a defender, an apologist for um, Sisi in Egypt, for Assad in Syria, for Putin in Russia, and for uh, anybody who's at loggerheads with or directly um, adversarial to the United States. So she gets a she gets one, two percent in the polls, and she's she's never going to stand a chance of being the Democratic nominee. But if she wants to prolong her moment in the sun, um, then a spoiler candidacy um, is theirs for the is there is her, is there for the taking. It's hers. It's hers for the taking. It, it's it's going to be set up for her if she wants to grab it. And you know, given her given her record as as a as a legislator, um, it would not surprise me in the least if she took it. Uh, no seems like that's where it's going. There's no logical other outcome. And she does represent a really attractive candidacy for those who drink heavily before they vote. Uh, so let me, <laughs> let, me, let me turn to um, Susan here. I mentioned your book at the outset. Uh, and, I, and I seem to have read that it's, it's coming out in like a few weeks, but in January, maybe. It was the beginning of January. Is that correct? January 21st. Jan- oh, well, one year before the inauguration of the next president. Um, and uh, I just was—I just thought this is a good chance for you to take sixty seconds and give you know get people to pre-order the book. Why should they do that? People should definitely pre-order the book, which they can do now. Um, in part because you know what we've really done is try to write a book that goes sort of beyond the assertion that Donald Trump is breaching all of these norms, and instead to say. Uh, the American presidency is an institution that has evolved a lot over time. 
Um, where did these norms come from? How have past presidents behaved? Uh, what are the areas in which we've allowed the office to change? What are the areas in which uh, we viewed presidential acts as transgressive and actually thought to, uh, you know, to sort of to repair them through constitutional amendments or, or, or other sort of upholding other norms? Um, and, and I think really trying to make the overarching argument that the unifying thread of Donald Trump's abuses um, is that he uses the powers of his office for personal gain uh, and for personal reasons. And the way he views foreign policy is, you know, for his own personal political gain. And the way he views the Justice Department is to, you know, protect his friends and, and go after his enemies. And that actually uh, having a president who really means his or her oath of office is critical and foundational to just the basic functioning of our system of government and that this, you know, however the impeachment sort of issue plays out, the American public is going to have a choice to make a little bit more than a year from now. And that the choice they really are making is what is the nature of the American presidency? Uh, you know, what is the purpose of public service? And then really what direction do we want this country to go in? Not in, in sort of a pure partisan political way, but just in a, in a fundamental sort of question of, of what are our values and then what do we stand for? So that's a very compelling case to be made for the book, and it touches upon something we touch upon periodically here, which is you don't, it's a, a system of law requires not just laws and not just law enforcement. It actually requires people um, to accept the underlying principles and live up to the standards that are implied by the gaps between the laws. And if a president thinks there's something he can get away with, uh, if a president discounts the standards, then you get into a problem, and that's that you know Trump is the most egregious example of 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 somebody who just simply uh didn't think there was a standard. So the book sounds like essential reading and I encourage everybody to pre-order the book. Finally, um and I I I think it may be interesting to follow up on this uh on next week's uh podcast um Ryan if events permit. But one of the things on just security that really struck me this week was the um uh the uh, 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 hypothetical indictment of Rudy Giuliani that was offered up, um, um, and 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 I thought, uh, I, I guess by Joyce White and and Barb McQuaid, and I just thought perhaps you might talk about that a little bit because I really think people ought to go and take a look at it. Yeah. So um, uh, Joyce and Barb are uh, both uh, former U.S. attorneys. Um, and what they've done is uh, draft a mock indictment. Uh, somebody on uh, Twitter, uh, Kevin John Heller, called it a model indictment, which is actually maybe even a better way of describing it, of what an indictment of Giuliani would look like today based on the evidence that's in the public record of his misconduct. And they say, you know, based on that evidence in the, in the, in the public record, they think it would be sufficient to uh, indict on three charges and they map it out. So you have an exact indictment as it might look uh, coming straight out of the Justice Department uh, that details the facts. And I think it puts together the facts in a, a kind of a powerful way um, that some people might not have thought about how they all thread together. Then um, very carefully um, details three charges. One, a conspiracy for election interference. 
second, a conspiracy for bribery um, with, the, with the quid pro quo. The first one does not require the quid pro quo. And then the third is a contempt of Congress by um, refusing the subpoena, to honor the subpoenas from three House committees on the basis that Giuliani thinks it's unfair. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm, having been like the editor on the back end of the piece, they were meticulous about not um, making the charges too broad, about looking back at the case law to determine what would fit within a bribery and a thing of value and an official act and what wouldn't. Uh, so some things are not in there. Um, so it's actually a kind of a very narrowly drawn indictment. And then, you know, a punchline of this, which is, it's spread around Twitter today and, and a lot of people read it, but I didn't see this being mentioned as much. A punchline is, it is an indictment of Rudy Giuliani and it's a conspiracy. And they also uh, identify individual one uh, in it, and that is uh, the president. Um, and they say that explicitly, they just use individual one as the placeholder. But it's a conspiracy for which Rudy Giuliani could be indicted and the president could be included as an unindicted co-conspirator. Very, it's, um, very sobering. <laughs> it's, it's very sobering. It's a great piece of work. And maybe we can get Barb or Joyce uh, to come and join us and talk a little bit about this uh, next yeah. week or on some future episode. Uh, but uh, as you can gather from this, following what Ed's doing, following what Susan is doing, following what uh, uh, Ryan, is, of course, is doing, uh, Just Security makes a lot of sense, and I strongly encourage you to do it. Uh, and obviously, follow what we're doing. You know, we just did a podcast uh, conversation with uh, Representative Jamie Raskin that I mentioned earlier. You should go and listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, and we're going to try to do those every week, and we're also going to try to add into them behind-the-scenes perspectives from people who really understand what's going on in campaigns from now through November, because, of course, that's going to grow in importance to all of you. Go to the DSRnetwork.com for more information about all of this and to register, because if you register, we'll send you highlights of all of this absolutely free. You don't have to spend any money to do that. If you want to spend a little bit of money, you can become a member. Go to the DSRnetwork.com and click on Member, Become a Member. Uh, in any event, we are grateful you joined us and we're also grateful to Susan and to Ed and to Ryan. Uh, and all, please come back soon. You were great. Uh, thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.